Good morning, West Park. Did you have a good week? Good stuff. Let me just say this uh, just before we get started. Uh, some of you in your uh, state of desperation have come to me and said, are you a candidate to be pastor at this church? And let me just say this. The answer is no. Okay. And uh, some of you are probably saying, thank goodness. Uh, and, you know, we all have an Uncle Mort. And Uncle Mort, when you see Uncle Mort at Thanksgiving and when you see Uncle Mort at Christmas, you just love Uncle Mort. He's kind of funny and interesting. But if Uncle Mort comes to live with you, you don't like Uncle Mort that much. I'm Uncle Mort, okay? So uh, I'm only here for a season, and uh, God has a man for you. I'm certain of that, without a doubt. Uh, open your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, chapter 5. We've got a lot to cover this morning. Uh, and I'm going to take this sermon and break it down into two parts. In the first part, we're going to look at the text, and we're going to talk about... Uh, you know, people coming to faith in Christ and then you get stuck or stalled in your spiritual walk. You're just kind of stuck. And then I'm going to uh, change gears as we get into chapter six here in a few minutes and we're gonna see what the outcome of getting stuck and a lack of spiritual growth and moving forward, what the sad outcome of that can possibly be. So if you have your Bible there, turn to Hebrews chapter five and we're going to begin and uh, just read a group of verses here from uh, uh, the last part of chapter five, beginning at verse nine, okay? So hear the word of the Lord. Follow along if you have your Bible there. Hebrews chapter five, verse nine. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Verse 11, about this we have much to say and it is hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. This is God's word. The writer here of Hebrews is uh, encouraging, exhorting these Jewish Christians, some who are sort of stalled in their faith and falling away in their faith, to stay the course and to continue on. And let me just take a minute and talk about Melchizedek there, because Melchizedek is mentioned. Uh, <clears throat> Way back in Genesis chapter 13, Abram's nephew, Lot, uh, goes and settles down. We're hearing a lot about the Middle East. Let me take you there for just a moment. Lot settles down near the Dead Sea. And he separates from Abram, from Abraham, because there's not enough uh, pasture and, uh, uh, to, to feed both of their herds. And so Lot, he goes and uh, leaves the group and he settles, some of you may know this, near Sodom. And Abraham settles at a place named Hebron. And ultimately, eventually, the governing kings kind of rise up and there's a battle. And Lot's family's taken into captivity into ho as hostages. And Abram 
takes his men and he goes to battle against these kings and he retrieves his family. And if you were to look down at Hebrews chapter seven, in fact, look down to Hebrews chapter seven. Let's just take a minute there. We'll, we'll take the time. Go down to Hebrews chapter seven because what we're doing here in Hebrews chapter seven, seven is we're picking up the story, if you will, of Melchizedek going out and meeting Abraham as Abraham comes back from battle and he's been victorious. And so here's what it says there in Hebrews chapter seven, verse one. And for this, Melchizedek, king of Salem, listen to these descriptors of Melchizedek as I read this. King of Salem, priest of the most high God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham he apportioned, this is Melchizedek, apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is, this is Melchizedek, he is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is king of peace. He's without father or mother, genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he continues a high priest forever. Now interestingly, and it you know, brings solid clarity to that at the end, the description of, of Melchizedek sounds very much like Jesus, doesn't it? As we read that, he's, First, by translation of his name, he's the king of righteousness, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And then we read that he's also the king of Salem, which is Jerusalem. And uh, he's king of peace, you know, and probably a few weeks from now, all of us, you know, maybe in our homes or here in a service, we'll read Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, about Christ being the uh, one who is known as the prince of peace. He's without father, mother, genealogy, having neither beginning nor end. That's John 1, 1, talking about Christ. And so the writer's saying, you know, Melchizedek was a high priest and he was all these things, but Jesus supersedes him in every way. And he's saying to these Jews, Jews, don't go back to the old ways. Uh, let me ask you this morning, right? Are you a follower of Jesus, but you've went back to some of the old ways? Uh, have you got a Melchizedek that you're relying on in your life? Your salvation needs nothing more than Christ alone. Now it needs nothing less, but it certainly needs nothing more than Christ alone. Now let's go back to Hebrews chapter five. Hebrews chapter five. And being made perfect became the source of eternal salvation, this is verse nine, to all who obey him, to all who obey him, Notice that. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And about this we have much to say. And in verse uh, chapter 7 there we saw that. But then look what the writer writes. I think the writer, you can almost sense a little bit of agitation and frustration in the writer's voice. And it is hard to explain. In other words, I'm trying to get you to understand this. But it's hard to explain to you since you have become dull of hearing for by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Now those are pretty harsh words. You know, dull of hearing. It, it, it literally means you sort of listen with your outside ears, but it doesn't internalize. Now, full disclosure. Sometimes my wife says to me, did you hear what I just said? You know, I'm sitting there and I'm reading or doing, and she goes, did you hear what I said? And I go, yeah, here's what you said. Bah, 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 bah. You know, that's how she hears it, bah, 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 bah. And then she says, you heard me, but you're not listening. 
Any husbands had that happen to them? Now, come on, don't lie in church. Put your hand up. Yeah, most of you. Right? Because we're sort of hearing it, but it's not really going in. That's what the writer's saying. You know, the things of God, you've kind of grown flat and cold and dull to them. And then look what it says this. You you need someone to teach you again. Now, listen listen carefully. I've been in ministry for 30 years. I've preached in probably a few hundred churches. And And I hear this term used all the time. I'm going to go to that church because at that church I will be fed. Yes, you will. One meal a week. Sunday morning. You cannot spiritually live on one meal a week. You're going to be woefully disappointed. And the writer's saying, you know what? You should be able to feed others now, but you still need to be fed. And if you go to a church, even if the preacher is fantastically gifted in preaching and he's an anointed servant, you are going to be spiritually malnourished if you don't, as a Christian, learn to feed yourself. Then you see what it says, you need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. Here's the imagery there. Do you know in the first century they didn't have baby formula? You know what the writer's saying? You're an adult, and you're still being nursed by your mother. We had friends of ours, and she nursed one of her kids till the kid was five years old. And I said to my wife, that's weird. That's just weird. It'd be pretty weird if an adult was still being nursed. That's the imagery. This is not reasonable, the writer's saying, that, that you have not grown up. And, and it's a call out to all of us, friends. Are we spiritually stalled? You know, a lot of people have been Christian. You know, I, I talk to people, how long have you been a follower of Jesus? 40 years, 30 years, 50 years. Now, now, a lot of people, they say 40 years, but, you know, you don't have to go too far down the road to find out that they haven't been a follower of Jesus for 40 years. They've been a follower of Jesus for a year, but they've done it 40 times in a row, which is wholly different. You know, your spiritual life is cumulative. You should be growing in that. I have a friend of mine, his name's Fred. He's a retired high school teacher. And late in life, he decided he wanted to be an expert on carbon fiber. Fred claims that if you read one hour a day on any subject for two years, in two years, you'll be an expert on that subject if you just read about it for one hour a day. So Fred trained to be uh, an expert in carbon fiber. You know what he does today? He makes carbon fiber violins that are sold all over the world. Because he just accumulated this knowledge. He, he, I've been in his shop and he says, let me, let me play this violin for you. Do you hear that wolf note? I go, no, I didn't hear anything. I heard, which disappoints him immensely because I'm not musical. But, but you can be stalled. Are you continuing to move forward and to grow in your spiritual walk with Jesus? Because it tells us there that you see what we, we've read there, that you cannot distinguish. If you do not do that, you cannot distinguish right from wrong. Right? You see what it says, verse 14. You don't have the powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That's kids, right? Kids, oh, I, I didn't know it was wrong. I'm sorry, I didn't know it was wrong. They, they don't have the, the depth to understand right from wrong. Here's what I want to do quickly. If you're a parent here, 
Parents, nod or raise your hand. If you're a parent here, if you've got children in the home especially, if you've got high schoolers or junior high kids in your home, listen to what I'm about to share these next few minutes really carefully. I want to give you eight issues that are hot-button issues in our culture today, okay, that, that you need to be wrestling with in your home and as a family. If you've got kids, you say, well, I don't have to worry about that because my kids are going to be in, the, in, in our home for another, you know, they're only eight years old. Your kids leave in two weeks. It's what it's going to feel like. But I want to give you eight issues that, that you need to have your kids to have some understanding in these areas. Okay? And so follow along. Record these if you will. I hope you have your sermon notes with you. The first issue is reductionism. Reductionism. You know, what does that mean? Let me give you a Bible verse. Now, you cannot debate with people who are not people of the word with the word necessarily. Because, you know, you say, well, the Bible says so. And they say, well, I don't care if your Uncle Harold says so. I don't believe either one of them. What is reductionism? Reductionism is the idea that everything can be reduced. You continue to reduce things to basically material and space. That, that, that everything is the sum of all the parts. That everything is tactile. Of course, the Bible tells us in Genesis 1.27 that God created man in his own image. There's something otherworldly about us. We're not just simply molecules in space. They were created in the image of God. You, you know, and it's an easy thing to really have your kids or for you to understand that you cannot live in a world of reductionism because there's things that are unexplainable. Intellect, morality, conscience, beauty. These are all non-tactile things that exist. So you cannot reduce everything just to that which is tactile. The second thing is relativism. Of course, our culture is replete with that. Well, it might be true to you, it's not true to me. Your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. That, that truth and what is good and what is right is, is sort of on this continuum and you can jump in and jump out when you like and at will. And that sounds very good, but in a culture that is relativistic, ultimately it's unlivable. Well, I don't believe it's wrong to kill my neighbor. Survival of the fittest. Proverbs 14, 12, there's a way that seems right to a man. Listen, if there was a verse for our day, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Wow. Judges 17, 6 has a bit of a rhetorical tone to it. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And the rhetorical tone is uh, uh, statement there is everybody did what was right in their own eyes, and it was chaos. It's th this idea of, you know, what's right for you, it's right. Sounds good, it's unlivable as a culture. Fragments our culture. Third, tolerance. Tolerance. Are we to be tolerant of everything in any perspective? 1 John chapter 2, verse 21, I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. You know, what are we supposed to be, are we supposed to be tolerant of every single thing? Number four, multiculturalism. How do we understand culture? I'm not talking race, I'm talking culture. Are all cultures equal? Acts 5, 28 and 29, Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world. 
Number five, this will come as no surprise, the sanctity of human life. Why do we believe in that, that life is sacrosanct, the human being is so profoundly important? Psalm 139, for you formed me in my inner parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb, I praise you for I am fearfully, wonderfully made by the hand of God. And this is not simply abortion, this is physician-assisted suicide and all of these things. But can you make a case in five sentences for why human life is so profoundly valuable? And these are issues you have to wrestle with your kids with. Number six, Judeo-Christian sexuality. The Bible teaches in the book of Hebrews, a few chapters along, in verse, chapter 13, verse four, let marriage be held in high honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled. So why do we believe that Judeo-Christian sexuality, our, our view, is, is the way? Number seven, biblical legitimacy. I've chosen the word carefully. I'm not talking about inerrancy. I am deeply committed to inerrancy. But when you kids go out into the world, when you interact with people, why is it legitimate to form your life around this book and what it teaches? And you can make a case for that with half a dozen well-thought-out, well-articulated sentences. Now, people may not agree with you, and that's okay, but that's a lot different than saying, when somebody says, well, why do you think the Bible is God's word? You, I don't know. My pastor said it was. And if you send one of your kids out into many of the secular universities or colleges and they get a secular atheistic professor, they'll smell out that they're a follower of Jesus and they'll begin to systematically dismantle their faith. And I as a pastor have seen time and again when a high schooler goes off to college and they come home at Christmas and I say, how's things going off at school? And they go, you know what, it's really tough. Like I'm, getting, I'm really getting dinged for being a follower of Jesus. One, one professor you know, embarrassed me in front of the whole class. What'd you say? Well, I didn't know what to say. And I'm thinking, shame on me, I'm the pastor. You should have known what to say. But as parents, you've got to invest in this kind of rigorous thinking so that they do grow up. Number eight, origins and world view. I'm not talking, uh, I'm not using the word creation, although that's what I'm talking about because you get into that whole huge debate on age of the earth and all of that but I am talking about where did we come from? Can you make an argument as, as to why we are here and what, the reason behind why we're here and then further the worldview that flows out of that and any worldview worth its salt should answer three questions. Where did I come from? Why am I here? Where am I going? And can you articulate that? Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So those eight things are what are just, it's not, that's not a, 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 you know, an all-inclusive list, but that's the minimum that you need to invest in, in your own thinking and the thinking in your family. We need a clear-headed thinking on these things. Now I wanna to go to the second part of where we're headed. We'll keep moving, we gotta keep moving. 
The second part is about not falling away. That's what the writer's talking about here. Look down to chapter 6. The writer says you've got to grow up in Christ. Gets to chapter 6, therefore. So you cannot stay this immature child needing to be fed, being nursed by your mother. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. So let me just take a minute and unpack that a little bit. The writer's saying, you've got to go forward in spiritual growth. You've got to go on to maturity. And in two verses right here at the beginning of chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, we see uh, six elements of the Christian faith. Now, here in Hebrews, these are looked at through a, a Jewish lens because the writer's writing to Jews. But there's application for us today in those first two verses. Let me walk through them very quickly. The writer writes to us, says to leave the elementary doctrines, go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works. The writer's saying, don't rely on your works. You know, you Jewish people, you're following back to the Old Testament works of the law. You, you cannot, that's not what you're called to. Repent from those dead works. They're of no value to you in your salvation. The second thing is living a life of faith in Christ. You see, it's faith towards God. And, and the writer of Hebrews, you know, the Jewish people, their faith was toward God, but now Christ has been revealed to them in full measure as part of the triune Godhead, and your faith in God is in Christ. The third thing is lingering in past practices. You see, the writer tells us, and of instruction about washing. You know, they're falling back to these Jewish practices and thinking they've got to do these ceremonial things. And I find sometimes Christians, they, you know, if they're not growing, they're falling back into past practices of their previous life. What about you? What about you? And then we see this, the laying on of hands. Now that, don't look in a New Testament lens like Paul speaking to Timothy in 2 Timothy, verse six, about the laying on. What they're talking about here is trusting in sacrifices. In the Old Testament, in Leviticus, the, the people, when they brought their sacrifices, they laid hand on their temple sacrifice, uh, on, the, on the sacrifices they brought to God to identify with them. And they trusted in that sacrifice to make Atonement for their sin. And the writer's saying, hey, you know, this laying on it, this whole sacrificial thing that you're doing, you know, that's been superseded in Christ. And then we see this, the resurrection of the dead, that, that as new people in Christ, you've got to have a clear understanding of resurrection. Would you be surprised if I told you how many funerals I've been at and I've heard someone say, including some pastors, well, you know, we, we rejoice that uh, Myrtle had cancer, but this week, she was given a brand new body. And I want to stand up and go, no, she wasn't. They've confused two biblical doctrines. One's resurrection, one's glorification. Will she get a new body? Yes. But that's ultimately glorification. And it's this muddled kind of thinking that confuses people. You know, the, the theological doctrine of glorification describes... You know, how we will be resurrected after death and given those new bodies, and those bodies will obviously have some continuity with our mortal body. The final thing is grasping the truth of judgment and reward. See the last little bit there, it says, and eternal judgment. 
You know, a lot of Christians say, well, you know, I'm glad I never have to face Christ in judgment. Really? Have you ever read 2 Corinthians 5.10? You know what it says? For, it's written to Christians, for we must all appear before the, do you know what it says next? Judgment seat of Christ. And now you're saying, I thought I was off the hook. It, it, you're gonna appear before Christ, but it's not to debate your salvation. It's to interact with him in regards to your reward. But you gotta understand that. So, so you have to grow in some of these areas and understand some of these areas. And why is that so important? Listen, because Christians who are not growing often end up going. Look at verse four. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. Let me stop right there. There's four descriptions given there of people who were part of that Jewish church that he's writing to in Hebrews. Four descriptors. They've been enlightened. They've been exposed to the light of the word. That's John 8, 12. And they've experienced the word in some shape. It says they've tasted the heavenly gift. There's discussion on that. I'd suggest that it's somebody who has actually entered into the fellowship of the church and they've experienced this, hev this future heavenly reality of us being together as one family. So they've tasted that gift and, and maybe they even got baptized. Maybe they've been taking communion. Shared in the Holy Spirit, it says. You know, at times they may have sensed the presence of God. Say, wow, I just really sense God today. And tasted in the word, they, they hear the word of God, the text says there, right? Tasted the goodness of the word of God. And, and, and they say, wow, you know, but, but look down to verse six, friends. Look down to verse six. And then have fallen away. Those are sobering words. They fell away. Now listen carefully. I touched on this a few weeks ago and I had some great discussions afterwards with some folks. Hear me on this, I'm deeply committed to the doctrine of eternal security, okay? Philippians 1.6, for I am sure that he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. Jesus himself, you know, Jesus himself tells us, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. I know who they are and they follow me, and then he says this, and I will give them eternal life. So I'm deeply committed to that. However, listen carefully, claiming faith and possessing faith can be two different realities. Claiming faith and actually possessing faith can be two different realities. Uh, a few years ago when I was pastoring, one Sunday morning a guy comes up to me and I'm out in the foyer, you know, and uh, he says, uh, can I talk to you for a second? And I said, yeah. He kind of looked around, and he said, uh, I don't tell a lot of people this, but I'm an international spy. I work for Canadian government. I said, oh, really? And then he went on to tell me this type of spy work he did and everything, and then he said, well, I gotta go. Off he went. One of my coworkers, one of our staff members was next to me, and they said, do you think any of that's true? And I turned to them and said, I haven't told you this before, but I'm actually a zebra. You can claim whatever you want. You can claim whatever you want. 
and lots of people claim Christ. But I want you to think clear-headedly this morning. Possessing Christ is more than simply confessing Christ. Now listen carefully. Write down if you want a reference. Romans 10.10. You should know that verse. Romans 10.10. For with the heart, internally, one believes and is justified. Begins internally. Something happens deep within our being where we are, we are galvanized in Christ, he gets a hold of us and he will not let us go and we surrender to the king and we're pleased to be his servant because he's such an amazing king. But then the second half of the verse is, Paul says, Roman 10, 10, and confesses with the mouth and is saved. But it's the internal and the external together. Both must be at play. They come along together. And saving faith is not simply some, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, right? It's part of it, but that's not comprehensive. So what does this look like? Look at verse seven. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. And verse eight, the other side of the ledger. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless, and it is near to being cursed, and its, and its end is to be burned. Let me just say this. If you're here this morning, and your parents are grandparents of prodigal kids, you took them to church, you took them to youth group, you know, you, they went to Christian camp, they, you know, they might have even went to a Christian school, you invested, you had family devotions, you did all that, and you've got a kid that has said, you know what, not for me, and they've rejected Christ, and they've went the other way, and you're just like, wow. You're not on the hook. You can warn them, you can't win your kids. And to think you can, you, you're placing yourself in the seat of what only God can do. What do you do? Two things. You love them like crazy. You love them crazy. You will not argue them back into the kingdom. You will love them into the kingdom. That's what Jesus does. And secondly, you pray like crazy and trust God in the investment you've already made in them. And I've seen parents over and over again with kids that are so far from God, I said, there's not a chance. And the parents keep loving and praying. And one day, the kid walks down the aisle and says, Pastor Steve, I'm back. I just say, praise God. Amen. Praise God. Now, there's some of you that are rightly troubled by these verses this morning. That's okay. Look down to verse 9. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things. In other words, some of you are pressing on. You keep going. Things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name. God's watching. Listen carefully. Others are watching too. Lots of people are watching. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, and this is what I talked about a few weeks ago, to show the same earnestness, in other words, keep loving, keep following Jesus, keep living out life in Christ, show that earnestness, why? Tells us right here, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. 
Because that assurance comes by way of endurance. That's how assurance comes. It's by way of enduring, continuing to follow Jesus. And that's so profoundly important because people are watching. Let me share a quick story and I'm done. Back in the Second World War, a, a U.S. ship called the USS Astoria entered into a battle in August of 1942 with a, a Japanese ship, and the Astoria was badly damaged. And during that battle with this ship, one of the gun turrets was hit and literally kind of exploded, and there was a young seaman named Elgin Staples. He was there, he got blown right off the ship into the water. His legs filled with shrapnel, he was in bad shape, and he's in the water. When he hit the water, he had enough presence of mind to pull the trigger on this inflatable uh, life ring that was around his uh, waist that all the seamen wore on deck, and it inflated, and he bounced around in the water, and another U.S. ship saw him and picked him up and put him on their ship, and eventually, a few hours later, he was put back onto the Astoria, and, uh, but he was in no, no position to fight, and the Astoria ultimately sank, and he was back in the water. Man, he just couldn't win, this young guy. And he's floating around there in the water, and finally he's one of a whole bunch of men that get picked up by another ship, and he gets taken to a little island off the coast of Australia. He's in bad shape, though. He is battered and bruised. Well, he's sailing to this island for to convalesce and to be uh, just looked at how bad a shape he's in, he takes off his little life ring and he studies it. And the reason why he studies it is because his life ring was made by the Firestone Tire and Rubber Company of Akron, Ohio. And his mother worked at the Firestone Tire and Rubber Company of Akron, Ohio. And he knew she was involved in making these things. In fact, when he took it off, he looked in and sure enough, it had the stamp, Firestone Tire and Rubber Company. Below that stamp, there was a little spot. It said QC number and handwritten in there was a number because that QC number was the quality control number. Every quality control inspector in that factory that made one of these life belts, the people that ran the company said, that's how we'll have people have ownership in the war effort, is get them to write their number in there, that they're, you know, they're standing up for our, our service people and, and ship those life belts off. So young Elgin, he looks in there and he sees quality control number, and for whatever reason, he writes that number down, he sticks it in his pocket, and eventually he gets sent back home to Ohio to convalesce because he can't fight anymore. His legs are wrecked. He takes him months to rehabilitate. When he gets home, he sits and he talks to his mom. He said, you know what saved my life? I was floating in the ocean, he said, for hours and hours. He said, it was my life belt that was made at your factory. She goes, it was. And he said, yeah, in fact, I even know the quality control number. And she said, you do. And he took out his little slip of paper with the quality control number. Elgin's mother was a quality control inspector. And the number that was before her was her quality control number that she wrote on the life belts she inspected. Her diligence saved the life of her son. Let me ask you this as we close. Are you being spiritually diligent for those who come behind you? Or have you stalled and, and you're still on spiritual milk? 
Or, or, or are you at risk of sort of giving up and giving in? Uh, I was in a meeting a week or so ago and a name was mentioned of a guy that used to be a Bible college professor who has fully walked away from faith in Christ. And students that he taught can't even get their heads around that. He, he, he did all those things that we've just read about in Hebrews and yet he fell away. What about you? Are you keeping the communion with Christ red hot in your life? What about you? Because people are watching. They're coming behind us. What about you? Peter said this, that we are to grow in grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ so that to him would be glory forever and ever. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we love you. Father, thank you. Thank you that you not only win us, but you continually warn us. May we never get dull of hearing, be satisfied with spiritual infancy. Father, give us a wake-up call this morning if we're one that has done some of these things. We've read the word, we've, we've been part of the church, and yet, boy, it wouldn't take much, Lord, and we could fall away. Lord, I'm reminded of Judas in an upper room when you said that one of them had, had a heart that had gone bad and was going to betray you, and none of the others could figure out who in the world that was because he had played the game so well. Father, call us out this morning if we are just in spiritual infancy or we're ready to go overboard. Father, we love you. We want you to hear that. We pray in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen.